1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. We are coming off of a little venture where we got to actually see each other. So that was one of the, the highlights of my year so far, is being together with you and Jason in recording a podcast. So I'm looking forward to doing more of those in-person podcast recordings. And in fact, you and I are going to be together, hopefully in the very near future with a trip to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I believe that this show that we're recording today will air about that time before we go down. And then of course, you and I are headed to Sun and Fun as well to do a show from down there. So looking forward to the month of April and uh, getting to see your smiling face.
0: Yes, it'll be fun, actually, in Florida, finally, after after a year. Well, we have an interesting show today, a lot of subjects, a lot, a lot of things going on in the business. But before we start, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if you want to save 5% on your insurance, please contact the Vemco Insurance, because they do reward their safe pilots, for recurrent training new ratings participating in the fast teams wing program and listening to the flight safety detectives so if you need to reinsure your airplane if you need to get renter's insurance flight instructor's insurance give evemco a call at 888-879-0389 and again mention flight safety detectives and you get a five percent discount Uh Where do you want to start today? There's five or six items on the agenda. Why don't we start with the Boeing Pratt & Whitney issue, since that's coming into the forefront on the news again.
1: That's a good place to start with the Boeing 777 that had an engine failure coming out of Denver uh, back about two and a half months ago and uh, unfortunately shed the cowling, which fell in a neighborhood. And, of course, uh, they had a residual fire that they could not extinguish until after landing. And so there was a lot of emphasis and, of course, a lot of discussion early on right after that accident because it was an uncontained engine failure, but it seemed to, to die down. Well, it sounds, John, like it's getting ramped up again, like the FAA has, uh, has gotten involved again to the point where maybe it's to an extreme. They're working with Pratt and Whitney. It looks like there's going to be either service bulletins or even some ADs coming out with regard to that engine. But there's also a big question about fire suppression, given the fact that they could not extinguish that fire in flight. So it's going to be an interesting time. But there's also an issue... Possibly of crew performance starting to rear its ugly head. So, I mean, it's a a little disconcerting that if there are issues that are coming forward now, why weren't they looked at early on in the investigation? Because we talked about the fact that the board thought, based on the cockpit voice recorder, just them previewing it, not having a a party group to, uh, to listen to it that everything was copacetic with the crew performance.
0: I'd love the NTSB to follow their own rules, but that's a story for another show. You know, we got a number of issues on this 777 that need to be addressed. And the first one is, you mentioned the fire suppression, but it's also an issue of the, the, the engine cowling. It's an issue of the design of the containment. Now, you, you called it an uncontained engine failure. I call it uncontained engine failure. By the definition, the NTSB is saying it was contained. Well, it did contain one blade. The blade that broke, it did contain that blade. But the subsequent damage, and maybe even that blade, they never said this, maybe even that blade then exited the front of the cowling and, and chewed up that rather soft material that's in the front of the engine. One of the things that the certification process does not address is the distortion that happens to the front of the engine when the blade is contained i mean it's this energy most people cannot comprehend the amount of energy that has to be stopped when those blades come off it not only distorts makes an egg shape out of the front of that engine but it also sends that energy further back in the engine in this case there was gearbox was cracked there was a number of components on the engine that were literally destroyed including a fuel oil heater, I understand, and which would then w- would leak combustible fluids into the, in and around the engine. So this particular accident is going to open the door to a number of areas that really haven't been addressed by the regulation yet over time. So, you know, the regulations, most people never realize it, but the regulations always play catch-up. Technology in the industry moves faster than the government can move. And so the engines have developed bigger and more powerful engines, and the technology is still playing catch-up to all of that. You and I
1: have talked about this with John Allen, where we, we had discussed, is it time for the FAA to convene a group of feds as well as industry folks and update these regulations across the board, whether it's operations maintenance-related or aircraft certification component part-related?
0: I think it's overdue. We did one in the 90s, ARAC committees. There's some ongoing ARC committees, Aviation Rulemaking Committees. There's, still, there's some ongoing ones, but it may be time to make it a little bit broader and take a good hard look at, at where we are and where we're going and what we need to do to, to stay safe on that journey.
1: I mean, we know that regulations, I mean, they there is a core set of regulations and of course they're updated and you and I have preached this for as long as we've known each other, and, and I know a lot of other people have too, and they've said, well, the basis for the amount of regulation is based on the blood that's been shed in accidents and incidents. And you can see that evolution from really the 50s when when the, the rule book did formalize and come out in 1958 and thereabouts. And it has just you know, exponentially grown as we've had accidents and incidents, lessons learned, and everything else. But a lot of those core regulations were established in the 50s and 60s and 70s that don't really apply to the technology that we've developed, invented, and now employ in a lot of these aircraft. And you know, to wait till an accident happens to go back and see if it was reasonable, practical, or, or applicable – doesn't make any sense. We should, with the knowledge that we have, start getting into some of those older regulations and trying to update them in a proactive way rather than in a reactive way.
0: It is time, that's for sure. You know, and especially now, we need to be taking a good hard look at where we're going. If it's 30 years since we had the last broad look at the regulations in those ARACs in the early 90s, 30 years from now, you're not going to recognize this industry. 30 years from now, we are going to have oceans of taxi cabs that fly, essentially. They're going to be everywhere. Every major population area is going to have these vehicles flying around in it. And Amazon and UPS and FedEx, they're all going to have their own fleet of similar vehicles. So, aviation is on the verge of some really major, major shifts and changes. So, it's probably time to start getting people together and getting the crystal ball out and seeing where the government needs to be as these industries progress. Playing catch-up is hard to do. We're on the cusp of it right now. I think that the government needs to be in there being part of that drive forward and maybe help mold it in a safe way. And that's not even addressing the likes of SpaceX because they're just the tip of the iceberg on, on space vehicles. We are going to see a ton of them. And we also see a bunch of them come. China is probably number two on the most aggressive list. India is coming on quickly with this. So we're going to have a traffic jam in space pretty soon. That's going to be an interesting game and how it disrupts everything. And remember, what goes up is likely to come back down again. And we're going to have to track all that stuff and hope it doesn't land in our big cities or interfere with some of these trade routes. I mean, you can't, at certain times of the day, When you're traveling from new york to london or vice versa there's so many airplanes in trail up there Uh, i don't think people realize that it it looks like a big bridge in the air with all these big airplanes going on essentially the same route so it's like an interstate highway with major trucks every mile or two miles
1: yeah You bring up a good point, John, you know, with regard to to space vehicles and commercial space, you know, one of the, the big hits that the FAA has taken with aircraft certification is the issue that where do they get their expertise and their expertise comes from the manufacturers because these regulators are just that. They're regulators. So they're not in the industry every day. They are at least a part of the industry on a daily basis, but very intimate technical knowledge comes from those people that used to work for a manufacturer that get employed by the FAA, but those are handfuls of people. Those are not thousands of people that one Congress thinks they need to have as far as that kind of expertise. And now, where is the FAA, since they're responsible for commercial space, where are they going to get their expertise? They aren't growing. Rocketeers in the FAA—they're going to have to get them from these out these companies that are developing these commercial rockets and and spacecraft—to get that level of technical knowledge. And again, that's an issue that you know a lot of people don't understand. Congress sure as hell doesn't understand it. They think they can—you know—if they throw money at it, all of a sudden magically they're going to have ten thousand people that are qualified, you know, to work for the FAA and go into all these manufacturers and and. It's not possible.
0: it's interesting you said that because recently the FAA reached out to a retired Air Force officer in their space program and hired him to run the space program. And while he brings expertise from the Air Force's point of view, many of us who have seen the Air Force other Air Force aviation people come into the FAA, they think differently. so it it's going to take some uh, time to adjust the agency and whoever the military people ought to come in, into the process. Because commercial operators are definitely different than military operators.
1: Yeah, there's a, a different level of structure and discipline. And, of course, we know that civilian aviation, while it is structured and disciplined, it doesn't have that same tight boundary that the military has. And, and we've seen that yeah. we've seen that with folks that we've hired here at the NTSB. They have a different way of thinking. They're very rigid, very structured. Well, that's great, but you can't have that expectation of a general aviation pilot or even a commercial pilot because it doesn't have that level of, of structured, you know, operational discipline, if you will.
0: Yes. Well, it's The FAA certainly has some challenges, The big one right now is that engine, because there, there's economic reasons why they're under pressure to bring out the uh, airplanes that have been grounded because of this this engine, and maybe they'll never come back. Fortunately, there's not a lot of them in the United States. I think they said there was 24, if my memory serves me right, but there was a total worldwide of about 150 of them involved, and they've been around for a while, so that may just This might be the kiss of death for those airplanes, and they'll go to the happy airplane home.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, because it's economically not feasible to re-engine these airplanes. So it is, like you said, they turn those those airplanes into beer cans and move on.
0: Yes, but the engine issues with the big fan blades aren't going to go away soon.
1: I mean, we've created bigger fan blades. Look at the size of these engines now. I mean, the size of these fan blades are enormous. And like you were talking about earlier, you think about just the energy in those blades as that thing is rotating at two or 3,000 RPM in the front section, but they're rotating at tens of thousands of RPM in the other portions of that engine. That's a lot of energy that when one of those blades lets go, you know, it potentially is like a bomb exploding inside that engine to make a mess.
0: Yep. Fortunately, they're smaller. And they're they're looking at, uh, one of the major manufacturers is looking to expand the use of ceramic blades back in the hot section most people don't realize that the temperatures inside the engine are hot enough to melt the material that they're made of. So turbine blades made of of, a material that can be melted just by the operating temperatures of the uh, engine. So they like to use ceramics today because ceramics can handle the heat and you know they're looking to all sorts of exotic materials some of the real big fan blades that we see on engines today and they got these fancy curves to them and the leading edges are uh, made of uh, pretty strong materials but the blade itself is made of composite material so that means even though they're big they may not be as heavy as these blades on this particular engine were so it changes the the dynamics of the energy of released Uh, so it's very very complicated but it's not just the blade. We talked about the, the blade coming forward, whether it's contained or not, how it disrupts the, the engine and destroys pieces of the engine in flight. And we have in this example where the cowling was ripped off and the engine cowling is integral to the fire suppression on that engine. So once that cowling was destroyed and that was what, what landed in some of those folks' front yards that we saw the pictures of, that cowling being gone prevented the fire suppression system from working so the fire was allowed to continue and we all know that fire on an airplane is not a good thing to be having
1: yeah well the thing that concerns me john is that what we're hearing is that uh, they may be going back and and now examining the crew performance in a more in-depth perspective It's almost 3 months after the event and i just don't understand why the board didn't convene the CBR group immediately after the event and get all of the critical work out of the way up front. It's better to do more and weed it out
0: than doing less and trying to play catch-up. Well, that was always the way we've done it, the way the NTSB did it long before I went to the board. I mean, I did my first accident with the NTSB in the early 70s. And it was always more, more, more. We want all the information, gathering everything that they could. And now it appears that the view has changed. And now it's not gather everything, but gather enough to go forward. But sometimes what you think is enough may not be enough. And we see that very often today in the general aviation accidents, where they send one guy who's probably loaded with the accidents, depending upon... The location where he lives, you know, if you're in Southern California, there's a lot more crashes there in December than there are in New England in December. So that that workload uh, can be de- difficult to work.
1: And having been at the board and been in IIC and and doing that work, yeah, you want to get as much as you can, especially what we consider to be volatile evidence or at least operational evidence. In this case, you want to know that the crew performed. Well, the board apparently thought that the crew did a you know good job in the initial reaction. But now there's concerns about, well, why were they delayed so much time? And, of course, we talked about the fact that they were running multiple checklists and things like that. And we know that every ACTS investigation, there are going to be new issues that are developed as the investigation process goes on. But the stuff that they're talking about now is basic stuff that would have come off a cockpit voice recorder had they convened a group and you had people that were qualified on the airplane listening to it, like we have. We always have parties with subject matter experts on board. And they could have said, wow, those guys are fast or those guys are slow in accomplishing these tasks and that kind of stuff. That would have been known Two and a half, three months ago, rather than well after the fact. Fortunately, no one was killed, seriously injured, or anything else. But there is a safety of flight issue that, if they really think that there is an issue with crew performance that could be addressed in training, you know, across the board, then that needed to come out back <laughs> right after the event, not so long after the event.
0: You know, I don't understand the motivation behind this because there's there's been no major accidents. They cannot possibly be spending very much money. They had a $150 million budget, I think it is, and they can't possibly have spent anywhere near that this year with no accidents and no going out. So, I mean, what was the percentage? You know, why, why not do the full record of group it's done in Washington, so you're not sending people here and there. The recorder's already back there. It's all the the parties that's gonna to have to pay the expenses to come to Washington and sit and listen to the recorder. I mean, it really doesn't make sense. And where are the where are the board members? Is there anybody home watching what's going on?
1: <laughs> that's your ballpark, John, since you once were one.
0: Yeah, you know, I made a lot of noise about things that I th- didn't think were right. Sometimes I won, sometimes I lost, but at least I I made the effort. And, and sometimes they changed my mind. All right, so sometimes I was wrong and, and I changed my mind. And sometimes I won and sometimes we had a draw and they win when it's a draw. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, it's one thing. I understand the whole role of the board members and they're out there making speeches and pontificating safety. But are they really? Because the agency sure hasn't done a very good job. And I mean, hey, that's not my opinion. That's fact when you look at all the accidents that these general aviation accidents where the wreckages were just picked up. They weren't very well documented. They're sitting in a boneyard somewhere waiting to be examined months and years after the fact. I mean, that's not acts investigation. That's not safety enhancement. And you can't write a recommendation out of something that you're going to look at a year and a half later if you didn't collect the initial facts. And as I've said on this show before, I was still going out. I've been, I was still traveling all last year, working for clients, doing acts investigation, and I've collected information with a colleague of mine. It was volatile information. The board will never get that after the fact.
0: Yeah, it's really a shame.
1: It is. And switching gears, we have a foul-mouthed pilot who decided to go into a rant (laughs) with an open mic in California. Again, this isn't the first time that's happened. But, uh, you know, John, I mean, we, we all know as pilots, you know, radio etiquette and the fact that, you know, you listen to what you're supposed to be saying on the radio you always check in to see if you have an open mic, because when you're finished talking aviation stuff that the FAA says that's what you're supposed to be focused on is aviation stuff, and you get into a, a non-aviation conversation, you want to make sure that that button isn't stuck or your finger's not on it. This guy really went off with quite a few of the choice words in the uh, curse word <laughs> vocabulary.
0: He sure did. But you know what scares me with that is he's got himself all all fired up. You know, his blood pressure is probably up. What's his mindset? He's going for takeoff. What's his mindset? You're supposed to be focused on the job at hand, not on, on uh, uh, political statements or your opinion on subjects outside of the cockpit. The sterile cockpit rule says that you're supposed to stay focused on what you're doing, on, your, on taxi going out. Do you have a checklist to run? Right? You have things to do, and you have things to do if you stop at the end of the runway. And if it's a type of operation where there's nobody in front of you and you're not going to stop, then you need to have all that stuff done before you turn onto the runway. So it's a busy time, and to have him going on and on and on about this, he not only is not thinking himself, but he's forcing his first officer to listen to this and and try to pick out anything that's, that's job-related in between this rant it's, it affects the both flight crew members in a negative way. So I understand they suspended this guy, but and he probably deserves more than suspension.
1: I would hope that somebody pulled the cockpit voice recorder because I'd like to hear how the first officer, we believe it's the first officer that was receiving this rant, how he or she, because we're not really sure, handled The reception of that kind of diatribe. Why didn't he or she cut him off and say, dude, sterile cockpit, I don't want to hear this. I want to know what that reaction was, what that interaction was. Because now all of a sudden, if you don't stop them and you don't correct them and you don't make them aware of, hey, man, we're getting ready. You know, you got to focus, dude. Then they're a bit complicit in all of this because it takes two to tango. And in this case, you both have to be of a mindset. You both have to be mentally prepared, cocked and loaded in case something happens.
0: Yes. And and given the fact that all the young first officers are now sitting on the beach, so to speak, I don't think that his first officer was a, was a young guy that was worried about his job. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this. If the FAA takes any action, the company has taken action reinforcing the the sterile cockpit rule
1: yeah well it's going to be interesting and fortunately we have a guest on today who uh we've had on the show before loretta alcalay formerly with the faa who is our resident drone expert for the show and she's going to be on to talk about drones and uh, some of the newer regulations that have just been published so Given her background, John, I think maybe we uh, pose a question to Loretta about the FAA legal ramifications for this particular pilot and what kind of actions the FAA could possibly take against a guy like this for doing what he
0: did. Yes, I agree. Well, she was not only just an FAA lawyer, but she was the regional counsel for the uh, eastern region. So she was responsible for all the attorneys in the region and has been... uh, involved in a number a number of major cases including shut down a guy in america she had the eastern airlines case at the very end so yes we'll have a, a difficult or an interesting not difficult interesting discussion with loretta here in a minute or two
1: well again john uh, i'm I'm very happy that uh with our podcast, Flight Safety Detectives, we can talk about a variety of issues. We have subject matter experts that we bring on board to give us varying opinions, and we've had a number of emails in uh, the recent past that people have suggested topics for the show. So, a lot of the things that we talk about, whether it's today or on uh, on future shows, a lot of it is is driven you, the listener, and we greatly appreciate that. So uh, we know that in this particular issue, somebody was asking about uh, the follow-up to the engine issue with United 328. And of course, uh, we do have a number of uh, drone listeners out there, drone pilots and uh, and operators. So we thought that Loretta would be a perfect subject matter expert to enlighten us on these newly published uh, FAA regulations for drone pilots
0: uh, before we go transitioning into to that segment I would like to uh, remind everybody to fly safely and that includes not participating in any of these recreational drugs that are out New York City or New York State, just allowed recreational use of marijuana. And that's great for New York, but it's not great for pilots. It's not great for secondhand smoke for pilots, because you're still going to test positive if you're around it long enough. And if you show up at the airport as a passenger and they catch you with TSA, that's a federal offense. It's a felony. And it's not a good thing to have on your record. If you're a young person and you have it, it could impact your job and if you just look at what just happened at the White House, a number of the young people that work in all the, all the support functions inside the White House, a number of them were sent home because they couldn't get background clearance because they smoked marijuana and they admitted it, that they smoked it. You know, even the vice president admitted, but she's elected. They can't do much about that. But if you're a yeah. worker bee and you admit smoking and joking, your future may be impaired.
1: Yeah. Well, the, you know, the big thing, John, is that one, not only is it an issue for pilots, but also mechanics and anybody else in the safety critical aspects of aviation. And that's a big deal. And of course, we've talked about it because I live in a state where it's been legalized for quite a while. And the concern is, of course, that somebody goes out and recreationally has a loaded brownie or whatever, and then decides to go aviating. And of course, all of their senses are impaired in some form or fashion. But the bigger thing is, this isn't a federal legalization. This is a state-by-state legalization. It is still a federal offense to have what the feds consider an illicit drug in your system and operating an aircraft.
0: Yes. So a word to the wise to everybody is that if you want to have a a growing and, and very... Nice career in aviation, just stay away from smoking it and stay away from people who do while they're smoking it so you don't get the secondhand smoke. Good morning, John the Ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha north. And now we have our guest, Loretta Alcalay. Welcome to the show. Well,
2: thank you. As a repeat visitor, I am very honored to have been asked back.
1: Well, that's because we made you a friend of the show. You have no choice. There is no place for you to hide, Loretta. We will always hunt you down because John and I are flight safety detectives. So,
2: <laughs> Well, I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, we're glad to always have you on the show. Now, John and I were talking a little earlier about about several subjects, one being legalized marijuana now in New York. Of course, I live in a state where legalized marijuana has occurred for quite a long time. And of course, we know that other states have similar laws. But I had mentioned the fact that marijuana is still considered a federal offense because this isn't a federal legalization. It's a state-by-state legalization. How does the FAA view it, given your background your previous history at the FAA, how would they view something like that where somebody's either demonstrating erratic behavior and gets reported and it's found that they have been smoking marijuana? And I know John had mentioned something earlier about somebody go, well, you know, it's legal where I am. Well, that's great. But how does the FAA attack that particular issue. Do they immediately yank a certificate or put them on suspension? What do they do?
2: Yeah, no, it's definitely illegal in aviation. And in fact, one of the things that the FAA has warned about is that it's really a bad situation if you're carrying drugs on you, because then You could lose your aircraft, you could be permanently revoked. So, there's very serious repercussions from not realizing that drugs and aviation don't mix. So, if the FAA believes that you're a user, or if you admit that you've been using drugs, that's going to be an issue for your medical. If you operate, Under the influence, of course, that's really so there's no pity for the fact that people are confused by legalization in the different states. And my concern right now is with the legalization in New York is with the students where John and I teach that they may innocently not realize that. Having legalized it in New York, that doesn't give them a pass federally or in aviation. And as we just saw in the Biden administration, a number of people were asked to leave and other people, uh, their security clearances have been held up. It's very serious to violate a federal criminal law.
1: And uh, that's that's the biggest issue, I think, Loretta, is Making sure that uh, the aviation community knows that while in some social circles, yes, marijuana is legalized, but in the aviation industry, there is no legalization and you suffered the greatest penalties because it is considered an illicit or illegal drug.
2: Right, and there's no recreational use exception.
1: Yeah, and and that's such a bad word too. You know, because it implies so much recreation. Eh, I only do it every once in a while. Well, you know what? I drink scotch every once in a while. But if I abuse it, then, of course, I jeopardize you know, my position in aviation with pilot certificates and, and that kind of stuff. So I just think that recreation for all the, the younger pilots out there, the millennials that are getting into aviation or in aviation, and even some of the older guys, because I know a number of older guys that they love their brownies so uh, and gummies yeah. <laughs> because they don't have any teeth. They love those gummies. (laughs) But the fact is, is that, you know, anything that has marijuana or any of its byproducts is illegal in aviation. Now we're going to turn to potty mouth (laughs) again. This was something that John and I talked about. And, you know, the fortunate thing about having John as a co-host is that he restrains himself when we're on the air. But his potty mouth, I'll tell you, I have to curb that on a regular basis. Fortunately, you know, he isn't doing it on a hot mic. Unfortunately, the Southwest pilot did have a hot mic and, and made some very, you know, just curse type statements, belittling People and doing it during a phase of flight where technically sterile cockpit rule should have been invoked or was invoked or was violated, if you will. How does the FAA deal with somebody like this, especially since they were broadcasting this little rant over open airwaves?
2: Well, it was something that I talked with John about also, and what struck me when I first heard it was. Not so much his words as the level of anger, which I thought was inappropriate for a pilot to have so much pent up anger, or at least, if not inappropriate, dangerous and inimical to safety. So I know years ago I had a, a situation where when I was working for the FAA, there was a pilot who had a rant against air traffic when we were landing. And I remember going in and, and speaking to flight standards and giving them the information on the flight. And they were going to talk with the flight surgeon about it because that kind of uncontrolled anger could be a safety issue. So I think that not only is a violation of the sterile cockpit rule, which again indicates something about the pilot, that he would violate a rule. It's a 121 flight. It's an air carrier. He should certainly have known better. And to have all this crazy kind of aggression about liberal drivers, I mean, it was it, it was a little frightening to think that he was flying for a major airline.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I brought up with John about that was where was the co-pilot? And we were assuming this was the captain. So where was the co-pilot in all of this? I mean, the recipient of this little rant. I mean, again, that crew, that individual has a responsibility to say, dude, you know what? We got to focus on what we're doing here. You know, enough of this. You can rant and rave after we get done on the other end. But we don't have time for this right now. we got to focus on, uh, on the fact that we got to fly this machine to destination. Does the FAA look at that part of it as well, or just the person that had the big mouth?
2: Well, I mean, I can't say that in my experience, the FAA has always looked at those issues as comprehensively as they should have. I mean, hopefully Southwest should be really the first party looking at it. It's their airline, and they should be concerned about the crew and the captain. But the FAA, in terms of oversight, especially now with uh, you know a lot of the compliance programs, safety management systems, they should be looking to see how did Southwest handle this? What did yeah. they do? And if they acted appropriately, you know, maybe that's all they need to do. But I would like to believe that somebody looked beyond just the fact that he was cursing, just the yeah. level of anger and, you know, the sterile cockpit. And and is this something that, it, that he does all the time?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, if this is a repetitive uh, pattern, then there is no place in the cockpit for a person like that. Do you happen to remember when that jet blue pilot, that captain, they got up to altitude and he left the cockpit and started ranting and raving to the passengers and the first officer locked him out right. and want him back right. in. Whatever mm-hmm. happened to that guy? I know that there was some sort of federal actions taken against him and I presume that his certificates were revoked. What was the long-term effect of that guy? Was he Did he go to jail, do you remember, or how was that mm-hmm. handled?
2: Yeah, no, I I don't. I mean, I remember the incident, but I I can't say for sure what happened. I just don't. I don't remember. I know years ago I had a case where a pilot was clearly under the influence, and I mean, this really was years ago. And the only person that reported him was the cab driver that drove him and the co-pilot and some of the flight attendants to the airport and he actually took off while the plane was still in the air the cab driver had gotten a hold of the faa or the police and anyway they when the plane landed he was under the influence and i felt very strongly at the time that The co-pilot had responsibility for that too, but Mm -hmm. the FAA made the decision not to go after the (laughs) co-pilot.
1: That's too bad. And John and I have talked on a previous show not too long ago about the abuse that cabin crew members are taking, that is flight attendants being abused by people that are getting on the airplane already inebriated or defying federal regulation by bringing their own stuff on the airplane and drinking and then getting very abusive with these flight crew members and this isn't anything new but you would think that some of these clowns would have gotten the message that they can't get away with this and and i guarantee when you have a plane full of witnesses you're going to pay some sort of price for that and i know that i was coming through Dulles the other day and of course, there's a, a huge video screen that has Keith Dixon on a looping message talking about that if you abuse the cabin crew, you're going to jail and it's going to cost you a hell of a lot of money. Did you ever prosecute any passengers like that during your time? Oh,
2: uh, yeah, we had a lot. In fact, the years ago when we first started getting a lot of these types of cases, we worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office and there was quite a few that were related to alcohol. But at that time, it was the airline serving the alcohol. So they had a little bit more control occasionally. And it was a lot of first-class passengers. It was a lot of people who felt entitled. I I worked on a, a number of cases, a lot of cases that we prosecuted civilly but also with the U.S. Attorney's Office. One of my favorite cases, which really was from decades ago, was a pretty famous lawyer who was accused of slugging a flight attendant. And his defense was that he only had one arm. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> but the arm that he slugged her with was what? still an arm.
1: Oh, my God. I mean, I think, man, if I was the judge, how do you stop yourself from laughing when you hear that defense? Yes.
2: Um, and then uh, we, had, we had cases against a famous reverend. I mean, people all over the spectrum that feel that they can abuse the flight attendants it's really
1: yeah it is and uh and i know that covid sure as heck hasn't helped any so and i've been traveling a lot and you know you become an observer in the airport and i know john's been back in the swing of traveling and you can't help but watch people and the way they interact and act. And um, I've been looking at it like a text message or, or an email. People have that mask on their face, and they're hiding behind it, so they do stupid-ass stuff, <laughs> you know, thinking that, you know, well, nobody's going to recognize who I am I can get away with. it. It's just like writing a, a very caustic email or text thinking, well, I can yell at somebody or say some stuff because I don't have to look at them face-to-face. And some of that, I've watched that happen in the airport, and it's just, it's ridiculous that these people, there is no airport etiquette, there is no airplane etiquette. We've lost all of that with some of these attitudes and the entitlement, like you talked about, and it's just like, get over yourself, you know? I mean, where is your, you got to have respect for yourself. If you're going to act like an idiot, go do it in your own home, to do it in a public place.
2: Well, and one of the things I've noticed is um, I've flown a few times on Delta since the pandemic, and I've also flown on American. But what I've noticed with Delta at the last couple of flights is that they have a very no nonsense approach. And it's not like it's not unfriendly, but it's not like they're asking you to do them a favor. They're very direct. This is the expectation now, of course, they have the benefit of saying that federal law requires. But I, I found that the change of tone and the like pull your mask up when they get on, I think it really makes a difference. They're not taking any crap, but they're not being rude. They're just being very direct. This is a requirement. This is what you have to do. And um, I was pretty impressed with that.
1: That's great. Good morning. Draw the ground. It's Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha, Juliet. A920, runway
0: 248
1: taxi. Well, I know that, you know, when we had you on the show last, we were talking about drone regulations because you are the expert in drones.
0: The drone queen.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The drone queen.
0: And she also has a new, a recent title that just came out of The Boston Film Festival, which was a drone event, she is now part of Grandmothers to Drone. What?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, one of the women who's actually a very well-known drone pilot started a a group of uh, not that she's a grandmother; she's very young, but Grandmas Who Drone. So we're going to see how many people we can get in our very small demographic of. Grandmothers
1: Who drown. Interesting. That's a great title, Loretta. You need to wear it well. You know, if the Beach Boys were still around, they'd have to re-record, you know, Little Old Lady from Pasadena, or that was Jan and Dean or somebody, I can't remember. <laughs> but, you know, they're going to have to uh, change the words from cars to drones. But in clarifying some of the regulations, the FAA has made changes now because there was a, a level of confusion. And so can you just shed some light on what the FAA did to, to clean up some of the mess that they created originally?
2: Okay, so the last time I was on, I talked about some of the confusion coming up because Congress had passed a law with regard to recreational operations, but the FAA had left an old law on the book. So the FAA took those old regulations. Off the books now. So it is clear that recreational pilots have to comply with this 2018 law. I think the confusion comes up because most people don't understand that their only obligation is not just getting the drones registered if they weigh over 0.55 pounds, but that they actually have rules that they have to comply with. And a lot of people thought, you know, before it was the five miles from an airport, but that's all changed. And there's basically eight requirements to operate a drone recreationally. And that includes whether you're flying it in your backyard or whether you're flying it, you know, in the middle of a city, wherever it is, there are federal requirements, but there could also be state and local requirements. So, you know, people who just buy a drone and think you can just go to your local park and fly, that is not the case. So basically, without boring you with all the details, I would say that people that want to fly recreationally they should go to the faa website and see the requirements basically you have to fly a visual line of sight you can only fly in class g uncontrolled airspace unless you have faa approval And there is an automated system for getting approval now for recreational pilots. So basically, there are requirements. If you don't meet the requirements for what's called limited recreational flying, then you have to have your remote pilot certificate.
1: Let me raise this with you. You know, one of the big things you can, like you were talking about, you know, you're a 15 year old kid, you got a drone for your birthday or whatever. They don't know what the heck flashy airspace is. So there is an education process. They just go and do the remote pilot certificate just because that's going to give them the best overall knowledge. Versus just trying to figure out, I don't know what class G airspace is.
2: Well, I would have said yes, except that you have to be 16 to actually get your certificate. You can take the test at 14, but you still can't get your license until you're 16. The FAA is going to and is developing because the federal law requires recreational pilots to take an FAA test, but that test hasn't been developed, so the FAA has sort of given pilots an interim pass on the test. They are supposed to fly in accordance with the rules of a community-based organization, sort of like the AMA, but the problem is that the FAA hasn't come up with rules for or a process for community-based organizations to get approved. So other than the AMA, which is the largest aero modeling organization, you don't really know whether any other organizations will meet the FAA requirements. But I would say for most people that are old enough that it's probably worth it to just get the FAA certificate. Because if you Break any of the rules flying recreationally, the FAA is going to treat you as though you were flying without a certificate. So, and that's what happened with the pilot I think everybody heard about with the $100,000 violation. He ended up getting charged as though he violated all the Part 107, the certificated pilot rules. So, there is a benefit to that. I personally feel that the recreational requirements are much too strict for the danger or the risk, especially if you're flying at a low altitude in your backyard. You know, the rules are what they are. And, you know, there have been several criminal prosecutions for not registering the your uh, drone. There have been certainly a number of FAA enforcement actions. I wouldn't say that there's a lot of enforcement action, but you just don't know when the FAA will take enforcement action. But in addition to those, I don't know if you want me to go over some of the new rules that came out.
1: Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask you, did they make any rule changes to uh, recurrent training or currency proficiency?
2: Yeah, actually, that was one of the best changes that the FAA made. So prior, actually effective April 6th,
1: it's
2: Tuesday, instead of having to take recurrent testing, which is what was required every two years, and you had to go and take a test, you had to pay $160, the FAA has replaced that with a free online recurrent training requirement. So, that should be available on the FAA's website on Tuesday, hopefully. And I know that I'm relieved not to have to go in and take another recurrent test. Even though the testing's not particularly hard, it's still a pain in the neck. And who wants to spend $160 if they don't have to? So, the training is important. Well, one, you have to take it to stay current. But if you want to fly under the new night flying rule, you need to take the new recurrent training. So basically, uh, the FAA did away with the will effective April 21 with the requirement to, to get a waiver to fly at night. If you have the new training and if you meet the new rule requirement, which is basically you have to have anti-collision lighting visible for at least three statute miles that have a flash rate sufficient to avoid a collision. So, of course, most people are not going to have any idea what that flash rate is, but fortunately, in the preamble to the rule, the FAA allows you to rely on manufacturers who say that the flash rate is sufficient to avoid a collision.
1: Well, that's, I mean, one, when you think about three miles, it doesn't sound like much, but that's got to be one bright strobe light.
0: Yeah, a lot of power to drive that too, even if it's uh, digital. Yeah, it's going to be interesting.
2: The lighting has been available. I don't know about the flash rate because I don't really fly at night, so that hasn't, been an issue for me, but assume that manufacturers will have those out. And the other thing to remember is for anyone that has night waivers that were issued before the effective date of the rule, April 21st, will expire on May 17th. So anyone with those waivers, they should not need them anymore. But they will have to take the online training. So even if a pilot is current today, but they want to take advantage of the night flying rule, they would have to take the training. But that gives them another two years. Plus, you know, it's online. It's free. It shouldn't be that difficult to do.
1: Just going to ask, can you give us the other changes that you see?
2: The other big changes were operations over people and over moving vehicles. And also, effective April 21st, the new drone rules expand the ability of drone operators to fly over people and moving vehicles without the need for a waiver. So, and this is in addition to the current rules that allow operations over people that are participating in the operation and people in covered structures. So what the FAA did was it set up categories of drones based on their weight or kinetic energy. And the category one is the one that I'll talk about more because that doesn't require further FAA review. Categories two and three require FAA acceptance and category four requires an FAA airworthiness certificate. But category one, which would allow effective April 21 for people to use certain drones to fly over people, the drone has to weigh 0.55 pounds or less, and contain no exposed rotating parts that would lacerate human skin upon impact with a human.
1: That's an interesting point. No rotating parts that basically can hurt somebody, which means that each of the blades, each of the rotor blades would have to have some sort of cage around it, right? or some, well, some sort of protective device?
2: Right. So what the FAA says in the preamble is that you can either buy something that the manufacturer makes or you can make your own. So the FAA doesn't specify how you protect the blades, but they have to be protected from the ability to cut someone. Wow. and. One thing I wanted to make clear, and maybe I didn't in the beginning, is that this only applies to part one of seven operators. So this is, these rule changes are only for licensed operators. They're not for recreational pilots. But then when you put whatever protective device, the total weight of the drone still has to be 0.55 pounds or less, which is interesting because DJI's Mini is, I think, 249 grams. So you would have to find a way of protecting the rotors. didn't add more than a gram of weight if you wanted to use that drone. Otherwise, I guess you'd have to come up with a different drone. And it uh, prohibits sustained flights over open-air assemblies unless... A drone has remote ID. And the only thing I'll say about remote ID is that uh, there's been a lot of talk about remote ID. It really doesn't go into effect until like September of 2023. So manufacturers are going to have to start complying with the rule sooner than that, but operators will have until 2023. The other thing that's important to note is that um, uh, there's been litigation filed against the FAA with regard to the remote ID rule. So the grounds for the litigation haven't been specified because in the Court of Appeals, you can just file a petition for review and then follow it up with a brief that lays out the basis for it.
1: Loretta, do you think that, you know, with with all the rules, regulations, whether you're a 107 operator or just, uh, you know, the, quote, recreational person out there that's screwing around, do you think that we're going to have an issue develop? I know that we kind of sort of have it, but not to the extent that we've seen with idiots pointing laser lights at aircraft where we might have people flying drones into the airspace just to see how close they can get to, not necessarily big airplanes, but just anything flying. Do you see that there's enough protections out there to mitigate those kinds of people, unlike what we've been trying to do is, you know, identify somebody that's point, pointing a laser light, giving a air traffic GPS coordinate, and then sending the cops out there to try and rustle these guys up? Do you see that as an issue in the future, or is there enough regulation and enough identification and and that kind of stuff? That that the situation is going to be few and far between.
2: Well, I I think that that is a very big concern of the FAA and security organizations. I think the FAA just named five airports that were going to be testing some anti-drone devices and I'm not exactly sure what they're testing but that remains a, a big concern. I I don't see that remote ID is really going to affect those with bad intentions cuz they're not going to get they're not going to use drones with remote ID. So it will affect law-abiding citizens who maybe screw up But I think when you're talking about bad operators, I don't think remote ID is is going to solve the problem. But I think that there are other technologies that are being looked at to make sure that, you know, those nefarious operators are stopped. But I mean, when you look at, you know, all the drones that have been operating in the U.S., you really can't name more than you know, a couple of situations that have even involved, I'm only aware of two, where aircraft have been hit. And I'm not aware of any situation where there's been, you know, significant injuries or, or loss of life. So, and that's with millions of drones out there. So while I think that, you know, catastrophic incidences are possible, you know I haven't seen a lot of uh, indications of either that kind of negligence or bad intent, but clearly there are agencies that disagree. I did want to just finish with the the operations over moving vehicles just so that people know that it's out there. So with category one operations, if you want to operate over moving vehicles, There are requirements that have to be met, but one is it has to be a closed or restricted access site, and people within that site are given notice. Or if it's not in a closed or restricted access site, the drone can fly over moving vehicles, but it can't be sustained flight. So you can't hover over moving vehicles. And if you want to do that, then you need to. Get a waiver to do it.
1: Yeah, that was. It's interesting because I I just finished my flight instructor refresher course online, and there were a lot of questions along those lines about whether or not you can control a drone from a moving vehicle or fly it, you know, over moving vehicles and, and open air assemblies and things like that. So,
2: well, right now the Category one can only be flown over an open air assembly if you had remote ID. So the FAA expects that when remote ID is available, that people will adopt it early just to be able to fly over open air assemblies, which are mostly in public spaces, you know, protests or gatherings or you know, things like that. So that's basically the new info the remote ID will come out in a well it's effective april 21st but in terms of when you'll be required to have it to operate won't be for a few years so hopefully the the litigation will have some effect i, I don't know what the bases are yet so i don't know what the chances of winning but
1: Let me just ask you one last question, Loretta, and that is, now with these regulations in place and and at least something for the FAA to hold people accountable against, is the FAA going to actively pursue accident or incident investigations? Let's say you do have a drone, whether it's 107 or something of substantial size operating nefariously or whatever, are they going to go out and investigate? now that there are regulations to hold people or operators accountable to? Or how is that going to work?
2: Well, the FAA has gone and and done investigations, and they've actually done some ramp checks that I've heard about. So usually there's so few inspectors and so many people with drones that usually something happens that, calls the FAA's attention. Either they're flying in controlled airspace and somebody reports them either from the ground, usually from the ground because from the air, it's, you know, usually pretty hard to see a drone. So there's usually something that happens or, you know, a drone crashes somewhere and the police are called. So that's how the FAA usually finds out and they they do investigate those incidents and there's been a number of cases as i mentioned not a lot of enforcement but there has been some
0: at one time somebody mentioned about a requirement for insurance and uh, i haven't heard any mention of that lately is there any requirements for insurance
2: there's no faa requirement for insurance but a lot of people that hire drone pilots Request insurance, require insurance. So, I mean, most people that work commercially, I I don't know that anybody would hire you without insurance.
0: Well, interesting.
2: For recreational pilots, people join the AMA because they get secondary insurance. I don't know, yeah. you know how good that is, but that's what a lot of people do. But if you're flying commercially, you really should have insurance. Yeah, it's what
0: actually was sponsored. Flight Safety Detectives is is uh, partially sponsored by a Vimco Insurance, and they provide insurance to pilots and airplanes and instructors and all sorts of folks. We'll have to check and see if they have anything for drone operators.
1: Yeah. Well, Loretta, we knew that we'd get all of the straight scoop from you <laughs> with regard to drones. And idiot pilots making stupid statements and uh, and drunk passengers and everything else. So
0: <laughs> we, we
1: always appreciate having you on the show for your high levels of expertise. But really, it's so that I can talk to you instead of having to talk to John. So
2: <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Well, it was nice chatting with you. I'm always happy to talk about drones.
0: Okay, Grandma. Well,
2: Grandma (laughs) drones.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. I can't wait to see the follow-up article.
2: (laughs) All right.
1: Well, thank you, Loretta. Again, you are a friend of the show, so we know where to hunt you down when we want you on the air with us. So, thanks again. And John, that wraps up another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I think, again, it's one of those things where we have listeners who are interested in certain subjects, and that's why we brought Loretta back, was to just update folks on uh, on the changes that uh, have recently occurred with drone operations, and not only the aircraft, but the pilots themselves. So we greatly appreciate having Loretta on the show. And I know that our sponsors because EMCO Insurance and PAMA are in the business of promoting safety in their respective areas, i.e. PAMA is looking out for the mechanics and the maintenance side of the house. Avemco is, is handling the operations side with aircraft insurance and a variety of different pilot type insurances. We know that these types of subjects are very critical to our listeners, so we greatly appreciate your feedback. You can always send us an email at flight safety detectives with an s at gmail.com give us your concerns your questions uh, give us your feedback and of course if there are specific topics or things that you want us to to either talk about because we've talked about them in the past or it's something new we always appreciate that to build the future show. so with that, my friend, I know that we are not together for this particular episode, but I'm looking forward to future episodes because uh, we will be back together. So, until then, I will leave you, as I always do, with the last words.
0: All right. And the uh, last word I'd like to remind everybody that if you call EVEMCO and mention flight safety detectives, you can get a 5% discount. So, if you need insurance, an insurance, give 888. 888- Eight seven nine zero three eight nine. a call. Mention Flight Safety Detectives, get a discount. And given these trying times, that it's not behind us right now. So please, stay safe in your personal life. Don't meet with large gatherings indoors. Wear your mask all times. Get your shots. Get your shots. Stay safe. Let's put this thing behind us. If we all do our part it will be behind us rather quickly and if you are going to fly remember the best flights have the best pre-flights all right think ahead make sure you explore all the options and think about all the risks at every airport there's oftentimes some different risks so do a good pre-flight and fly safely Till next time To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation
1: Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you
0: find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.